This week, another returning guest from an early podcast. It's Lukic, which is kind of like Luca from last week, only completely different. But an interview with another really smart poker player coming up. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. I'm one of your hosts, Dean Martin, and uh, Perswati is coming up soon with the interview. Uh, looks like we are on live poker hiatus for a couple of weeks. Uh, California closed poker and Washington closed poker rooms down earlier in the week. Maryland's governor announced yesterday they wanted all casinos, racetracks, uh, gathering places of such ilk uh, closed down. Uh, I played at Charlestown yesterday, but that's probably my last day of live poker for a while. Last week, I put up a community forum on at thepokerzoo.com, a little community tab at the top, kind of as a test of the forum software, but uh, as I thought about the poker rooms closing down, it could be used as a place to connect and talk about uh, how you are adapting, where you're playing uh, online, uh, home games, and when poker rooms are opening back up. It's free to use if you'd like. Uh, if not, I'll take it back offline. As always, you can find this episode and all other episodes of the Poker Zoo podcast at persuadio.nl. Place underneath there to leave comments or questions about uh, the show, anything you'd like to talk about. Uh, we're also on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, all the podcast aggregators that you, regular podcast aggregators that you might choose. And with that, here's Persuadio and Lukic. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Today, we continue with a tour of some of our previous guests in the TBR circle of poker players. Although we haven't heard much from him lately, he's actually been quite busy, including starting a poker website and appearing in the Solve for Why Poker Out Loud series, uh, and who knows what else. So welcome back, episode 10 guest, Michael Lukic. Excuse me, Michael Uh, Lukic. (laughs) No worries. Great to be here, Chris. Did I get it right at all? Uh, You got the second part right. It's Lukic, is it? Lukic, yeah. All right. I might do a little editing there. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's get going. Um, Anything happening in the world down on your end? Uh, You know, (laughs) I I, I went to Trader Joe's this morning and uh, stood in a line that was back to the the back of the store. But uh, so, yeah, it's a little uh, hectic going on these days, I guess. (laughs) Hectic. So it's it's busy on your end. See where I'm at. It hasn't really been that busy. Uh, I know I'm in near the, the supposed epicenter. But uh, things are pretty quiet for the most part. And yes, you can get toilet paper. That is good to hear. I was worried about that. <laughs> um, let's uh, talk a little bit about the epidemic and poker. Are you playing live at all or is that just over? What's going on in uh, on the East Coast? Yeah, I'm, I'm taking a hiatus, which... Uh, kind of pains me to do so uh i live is what i would prefer to do um and i typically try to get to the casino one to two times a week to play Uh, i played last friday and it was definitely a a topic uh, of conversation at the tables but you know nowhere near as as dominant as it is now and uh you know i canceled a tournament that i was supposed to play in uh this week that uh, it ended up being canceled after i i stopped uh, i took i pulled out and i don't think i'm going to be you know going back into a live environment until we get past uh the next uh, you know this upcoming period of time any thoughts on that are you someone who tracks the uh very carefully i mean you're a data guy as we'll talk about uh What's yeah. your take on the situation? <laughs> well, I'm I'm nowhere near an expert, so 
you know, most of uh, my uh, what I've been tracking has been just been trying to follow uh, uh, the people that are experts uh, on social media and, you know, taking it, whatever advice that, that, that they put out there. You know, I, I, I think the answer is nobody knows. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of the even the experts are showing a lot of uncertainty about things and, you know, where the next, uh, you know, few weeks to months uh, goes depends largely on, you know, how the rest of the country and world starts, you know, pulling together and responding to things. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's scary. It's, uh, uh, a little nerve wracking, but I, you know, I think all we can do is just try to, uh, do what we can to, uh, keep moving forward. Here's someone who is, you know, at least modestly involved in social media. I see you in the various chats occasionally. What's your opinion of the poker community's reaction to the situation overall? Um, I mean, I think a lot of it has been uh, positive in the sense that uh, uh, you're seeing a lot of people realize that, you know, poker tables, they seem, or poker rooms in general, are probably uh, more prone to, <laughs> um, you know, the it's the exact opposite of social distancing and, uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, more prevalent to spreading germs and spreading diseases. So I think a lot of the players have, you know, realized that and have, you know, rightfully advocated for some caution here. Uh, surely there's definitely some folks out there that are, you know, probably thinking that things are overblown, but, you know, I'm of the opinion that, you know, if we look back on this, you know, months from now and say that, you know, we did overreact a little bit, that's probably a good thing. Fair enough. Now, one thing that's come up is that intersecting with this event, and not that poker is the most important thing in the world, but more and more online play is happening. Do you think that you yourself will be playing more online? Do you think the poker community will make a, you know, a slight shift even if things resolve fairly quickly? Yeah, I, I definitely do think so. And and I'm in the process of, I have kind of like pennies uh, in uh, in an online site right now, and I'm I'm in the process of uh, putting more money in so I can actually play for money that matters. Um, uh, but I, I can't imagine I'm the only one that's going to be doing that. So I think you're going to end up seeing a lot of uh, live players uh, gravitate into the online space, at least for the shorter term. All right. We, we've asked for your talking head points, and, and now we'll get in uh, a little <laughs> bit into what you're maybe expected to talk about here. You started, we'll get, we'll get into everything you're doing, because uh, cool. you're doing a lot. But let's start with what you've done recently, which has come out with a very professional looking, and I mean that in every sense of the word, very serious looking <laughs> website. Tell the, introduce yourself and, and, and to the listeners what this is and where they can find it. Sure, sure. So um, it, it's, it's only professional because I, I literally copied a template from that I was using for a um, freelance consulting site that I had for, <laughs> for uh, a different business. Uh, and I started with that. So that's the reason why it, it looks more like B2B focused. But, um, uh, you know, I, I started the site. <laughs> I thought you were going to be selling me some consulting or something. <laughs> that was that was before I decided that uh, that was kind of a dead end there. So uh, <laughs> um, but the template stayed. So um, no, I I started the site right. uh, at the beginning of the year really to kind of continue pushing myself and pushing my growth. Um, I think last year, 2019, was pretty transformational in my development as a player. So I've been playing since 2003, and I've you know constantly had you know poker theory books in my rotation and stayed somewhat somewhat studied. But I don't think I really started putting a lot of those concepts together until last year. And I, I, a lot of that really, I think, you know, works in parallel with a lot of the things I did last year. I, I started utilizing 
um, my day job, which is uh, I, I run a data analytics team to start actually looking at poker scenarios. Um, I started working with self Y. I started really spending a lot more time on the independent learning path. And I don't think coincidentally, uh, my win rate grew significantly and I moved up in stakes. So you know, as I looked at my 2020 goals, I realized I, I have one and that's just to continue to push myself. And I wanted to think of something I could do. And that was starting the website uh, was a way in which I could actually do that was uh, putting my thoughts and putting my research and ideas out there into the community as sort of a, a peer review. And, you know, I think the work I'm doing is, is pretty cool. And it's helped me to really quantify some of the concepts at the table. And the website's just a way I can actually, you know, test that out with uh, various, various audiences. Well, absolutely. Teaching or sharing is 100% a way to improve yourself. Did you did you mention the site, though? Where can people find it? No, they can find it at lukic.io. So that's L-U-K-I-C-H, uh, which is just my last name, uh, dot I-O. What does I-O stand for? Um, you know, that's a really good question. Uh, Lukic.com was taken. And I was just looking for uh, different uh, um, ending uh, domain names. So uh, that's that was nice and short. <laughs> no, I like it. It makes, it makes you sound like... Very brisk and European. It's good. Um, <laughs> let's see. If we look at the top of your website, we find uh, some divisions and categories. Video, writing, media, research, coaching, recommendations. Uh, tell us what we're going to find there if we start poking around. Sure. So, you know, I think when I when I first started, I, I didn't really know what, what this was going to be. Um, and I really just meant to put this up there as a way of um, putting really any of my thoughts up there. So that could be, um, you know, some spreadsheets that I put together, some data visualizations. Um, I might, you know, I was planning on analyzing some situations using like PO Solver or GTO Plus, um, and as well as just tracking my overall research. And, uh, you know, so for the most part, I, I don't know if I necessarily had a, I guess, longer term plan. It was just uh, meant uh, to be a place to kind of dump all of my ongoing research. Um, I, I think I've since started to focus this a little bit more around a larger scale project that I've been working on. And, um, you know, that's where I think the site is, is going to be start start developing towards a little bit more going forward. Fair enough. And maybe that relates to what we talked about last time, which was, um, you know, some database work. And well, not just some make it sound small, but a rather large project. I think it was called flop characteristics and their EV. Was that right? Yeah. Uh, and it definitely has to do with that. I think that I even that work that I was doing then, um, I don't think it was, I, I really looked at it at a, um, I don't think I did it in organized fashion and it wasn't a part of something bigger. Um, so I, I've been working on this larger project and I started working on it last year. And it was, you know, last year when I was at the Software Y Academy, Berkey was talking about documenting your strategy. And I really forget the context with which he was bringing it up, but the idea of just documenting your strategy really intrigued me. And um, so I, wanted to actually try to go about doing that in a textual form. And I, so I wrote an outline, I wrote an outline for, you know, pre-flop, flop, turn river, and basically started to analyze as much data as I could for each decision and, um, working. So, you know, for pre-flop working with solvers to find equilibrium ranges, um, you know, build data sets off of that, look at different hand classes. But ultimately I started realizing that, uh, one, um, you know, I'm, I'm essentially building a strategy from scratch by doing this and building it the way I kind of know how using, uh, using data to, to build the strategy. And, you know, it was late last year after I was writing for a while and I, I, 
realized I had around a hundred pages written already that I, I was actually writing a book <laughs> and you know, it's, you know, it, it might Whoa. be a book, it might be a book for me. Right. But it was, uh, you know, it's, it was really just a strategy, um, <laughs> uh, um, guide that was just an ever evolving strategy book, but it, it still is a book nonetheless. And I, I don't know how long, um, you know, that'll be, that'll take to be, um, to finish or when it'll be done or, you know, who and if I'll share it when it's actually is done, but when it is done, the plan is to have a nice comprehensive strategy that's completely built by data for deep stack cash games. Uh, that's, you know, the website can be a really cool way of, of documenting the process of writing that from, from th the back end. you know, looking at the research I'm doing as I'm actually putting this together. Well, even if, you know, just your son finds it in his hour of need and becomes a <laughs> poker champion. That's good. But more seriously, uh, yes, you seem to be in a, at least three episodes in to describing research. And you start uh, with an outline in February explaining what numbers you're looking at, the formations, Etc. And then you give you 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 give the the four general scenarios, which are fairly standard. Well, you describe them as offense, which I assume is you know the PFR opening and being called. Yep. And defense, the caller, both in position and out out of position, and that comes across as four categories. That seems pretty reasonable. Were there other ways to do it? Why'd you settle on that? So that's just the ways in which I'm actually grouping the formations um, within each of those. And I haven't gotten to this point yet, but I, I have the data all ready to go. I just haven't gotten to the writing of this yet is starting to break out things by characteristics. So, you know, this is when we're looking at, you know, the different board groupings. So, you know, ace high boards, uh, you know, king high boards, uh, you know, boards with three high cards, et cetera. Um, you know, whether there are flush draws, whether there are straight draws, um, you know, whether the board's paired. So really kind of starting to understand the board texture a little bit more. Um, that's going to be a complete section of this as well, too. Um, and, you know, the plan is to to work through the flop and build a, uh, a flop strategy and then make my way to the turn. I haven't quite gotten to what the turn um, outline would start looking like. But, uh, you know, really, I'm, I'm trying to just work my way from from beginning to end. So as I'm actually writing this, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of cool. I'm I'm writing I'm writing things and I'm I'm working through a lot of data to um, analyze individual situations and and come up with a strategy. My main priority actually is not to follow um, solver strategies uh, uh, very specifically um, because I, I don't believe that we can actually implement those strategies. So it's trying to take general concepts out of these solver strategies. Um, turn it into something that I actually can implement at the table and uh, and actually working that into um, an overall strategy guide uh, with different guidelines as to how and when I should be deviating from that strategy based on things like player profiles or the game flow or whatnot. Okay, that's interesting because it's true that it would take an extraordinary person. I don't think any person, so, you know, maybe just a handful of people exist you can really duplicate a solver strategy so what's an example or of a simplification that you use or, or can you describe some of your simplification process sure so um you know i think a lot of this uh, a lot of the work i'm doing right now is is within frequency analyses right so um especially when you start looking at things at the formation level and you say um okay, well, we're in a certain formation and take, you know, just call it like a, a button versus big blind open, you know, based on certain board textures, um, I might, I, I sh might have to, I might, uh, the software might recommend that I bet, you know, 
78% of my range uh, for a large sizing and then, you know, 10% of my range for a small sizing and then check the remaining 12% of my range. Well, that's obviously, like, as you mentioned, pretty difficult to impossible to actually implement accurately at the table. But what I can do is start um, estimating things by saying, well, maybe if I can simplify something down to one bet size and um, bet approximately, you know, half of my range or three quarters of my range, but something that is at, at more of a, an approximate level, uh, it at least gives me a guideline from which I can actually implement the table. Now, certainly you can make the argument that uh, I'm not so going to be able to. You're good at, um, so you're able, you feel you're able to execute percent form fairly well. You know what the percentages mean in game. I think I can approximate um, just because I've seen enough solver outputs to be able to approximate where a hand sits relatively in my range. Now, if I'm going to be able to, it, one, I think it it requires you to have a good understanding of what your overall range looks like. Um, but, and, you know, I don't think it's super important to be very, very accurate. So for instance, if I think a hand is at, in the top 25th percentile of my range, and really it's at the 30th percentile mark, I, I'm really making a mistake with a cusp hand. And and when I make a, when you make a mistake with a cusp hand, you may be making an error, but the error is relatively small over in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, I think by approximating, it at least puts you in the right direction so that you're actually thinking through what are your incentives uh, with a particular range, with a particular hand, and how should you be, you know, approximately acting with those hands. Uh, let me get a little detailed here. Uh, in terms of the bet sizings you've given for this, and this is, you're using 184 flops, which, you know, many people use, I believe. You're using three options, all of them relatively small, 33%, 66%, and check. Why those options? Um, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm asking why. No, I mean, so that, that it's a fair question. And, you know, if if one of the options of a solver right now was to um, just give it infinite bet sizes and let it uh, choose the right options, that's that's the route I would I would choose to take. Uh, the, I did that for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it, it's it's fairly common. Uh, so uh, you're saying that um, a small bet being about a third of the pot, a big bet being about two thirds of the pot. Um, those are for the offensive scenarios. And then for the defensive scenarios, I, I just gave us, you know, one bet option, which is half the pot. So I think they're generally fairly common um, uh, bet sizes. First off, um, I had to make some decisions around standardization first. So uh, typically, you know, when I when you're trying to do a, a, a deeper mass data analysis, you have to build a lot of uh, tables that are going to handle the same, handle many different scenarios. So in order to do that, I had to standardize some of these options across different uh, different formation types. And that was my way of, of actually doing that, which is just finding, you know, a small size and a large size and, and working from there. Now, I probably could have, could change this and get somewhat similar results if I gave it myself, you know, a 25% and a 75% bet sizing, you're going to see slight differences. But, you know, I think the, the specific bet size is probably less important as to just the overall um, giving it a small bet size option and a large bet size option. Nice. So then that segues into the other question. I mean, I like what you've done in both cases, but uh, why on defense is there only one option and why is it 50%? Well, I think for a few reasons, I guess. Uh, one, 
Um, we're typically going to have uh, on defense for the most part, we're going to have a very capped range, right? For the, on the majority of flops and um, villain, uh, our opponent is going to have uh, the range advantage on a large majority of boards because they're going to be uncapped. We're going to be capped. Uh, so in general, we're going to be at an equity disadvantage. Um, and uh, that's going to make our path to polarization just a bit more difficult, meaning it's going to be harder for us to um, start out with large sizings and continue with large sizings all the way through the river without you know, really staying unbalanced. So uh, because of just the disadvantage that we're at already, um, I I just gave us the one size of, of half pot, considering that we're mostly going to be checking in that spot anyways. They're, we're actually going to be checking more often than, than not when we're in the defensive game tree. So uh, it, this just simplifies things even more because as we start trying to you know, be a little bit more um, specific with our different bet sizes, at least what I've seen in, in the solver work that I've done, when we're doing so with actually a very, very narrow range, it becomes really, really difficult to balance appropriately. All right. Seems reasonable. Now, you used a phrase that uh, comes up in Solve for Why parlance sometimes, the path to polarization. Uh, what, what does that really mean? And do we always want to be on that path? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't think I think if we can get to that path, it's a it's a good thing. Right. And I think that's a um, but we can't always get to that path. And, uh, you know, so I, I think uh, one of the best actually ways uh, um uh, well, I mean, I, I know Christian and, and Berkey talk about this all the time, which is, um, you know, we want to be in a spot where we have a polarized range and uh, our opponent um, has a capped range. And, uh, you know, I think that's been demonstrated uh, in a lot of the really good theoretical literature, literature um, you know, most recently, uh, Andrew Brokus's book, um, you know, Will Tipton's book, uh, talk a lot about uh, a polarized range versus a, a capped or a merged range and how that's really the, the place where we make money um, most easily <laughs> in, in this game. So we want to get to that spot. Um, you know, sometimes we can't get ourselves to that, to that situation. So, um, but it's, it's really going to be dependent on, you know, the texture of the board, how the board runs out, what our range looks like, what's our, what our opponent's range look like. Um, but if we're able to get to that spot, that's an area where we want to be funneling our opponents to. Fair enough. As it's um, been observed before, polarization is, uh, the great moneymaker in Hold'em. Very nice work uh, so far explaining this, but let's let's turn the page and look at one of your other entries and just move up to examining formations one in position offense. <laughs> what did you find here? Well, um, you know, I guess you know, to caveat things to start, um, you know, I am... I'm starting at the macro and I'm working my way down. So, so really at this point, I'm, I'm not looking at any individual flop textures. All of these are formation is just a, it's just a formational analysis and it's all 184 flops aggregated together and trying to uh, determine what are the right frequencies and what really are my overall incentives um, at um, each of these individual uh, formations. So, what I've actually, um, you know, I've, now I've done two. I, I've I've covered both the offensive, uh, both of the offensive out of position and in position game trees, um, and this one specifically is is uh, the in position game tree. I'm trying to actually try to simplify things a little bit so that um, instead of having to look at you know 32 different formations, uh, which is the amount that I chose for the entire analysis, maybe I can 
group some of these formations together and realize that some of them are actually going to play very similarly to one another. So, uh, you know, specifically, uh, and I, I have a, a few different findings for each of these different kind of uh, high level um, uh, uh, formation level analyses. Uh, but, um, you know, for this specific analysis, uh, I, I broke it up into single raised pots and, and three bet pots. Um, and single raised pots were fairly interesting um, in the sense that uh, what I was actually surprised about is the amount of so we always uh, so a lot of times these imposition offensive formations it's it's we open and we're flatted by somebody from the blinds right so that could be a small blind or a big blind and i think a lot of times we just tend to at the table just lump these two together sometimes and say okay well we're we're, we're facing a, a blind defender we should play our range as as if we're playing you know essentially just a blind together and a blind defender and and lumping that together um but one of the things that jumped out to me is is we're seeing a lot for our small blind ranges uh, that we actually don't have as much of of an advantage uh, from an equity standpoint, from an EV standpoint, from a realization standpoint, uh, when we're facing a small blind defender than we are facing a big blind defender. And I guess that's obvious after you kind of uh, think about it a little bit um, uh, more, our small blind defender is going to have a narrower range than the big blind will when they're actually flatting out of the small blind. Um, but I think it's a lot of times it's, it's easy to overlook that and it's easy to overlook insights like that when you're actually at the table. So actually just seeing this, this in the data that uh, we're going to we're going to actually earn less EV against uh, a small blind uh, defender than a big blind defender. We're going to we should be betting less frequently. Right. This is going to help us uh, a little bit more with construction decisions as we're determining how we should be putting different things into our ranges and maybe some cusp hands that we would be. C betting on against a big blind defender, we should actually be putting into a check back range against a stronger small blind range. So this will be really interesting to poker players. I mean, let me go over a few things. First off, a small blind flatting range basically doesn't exist in a lot of very contemporary theory, but we all know that's a lie, don't we? Yeah, and it's it's funny because uh, I people do call from the small blind. Yeah, it does, and it's actually you know. Up until recently, I think my own strategy was, especially when facing a late position open, was to not flat it off from the small blind. It was basically three bet or fold. Um, and a lot of the uh, you know ranges that I've seen from and, and you know working with with, with you and, and Porter uh, and, and seeing some of those Munker ranges, uh, they even remove the small blind flat as an option in, in some of those uh, some of those ranges. Uh, but I've also seen other ranges where the option isn't removed and the solver at equilibrium does choose to have some sort of flatting range from the small blind. And obviously, as you know, like in practice, it's you definitely see flatting ranges from the small blind there too. So it's definitely something that we have to face. Absolutely. Now, Right. Now, the other thing about it, and well, more than one thing about it, is that, you know, we generally that range is capped, though. So explain to the listener why um, late position, if that's true, and maybe if not early position, have trouble against this slender capped range from the small blind that's flatting. Sure. It, it's it's much more on the late position that, that has trouble. Um, early position is when all things equal. So if I compare an early position open... Um, versus a small blind flat or versus a big blind flat, it's slightly more disadvantageous uh, um, against the small blind than it is versus the big blind, but we still have an advantage. Um, it's the late position opens that we actually run into issues. And I think a large portion of that is just how wide we actually are from from the late position. Uh, 
and just how uh, narrow and condensed the small blind actually is uh, when they're flatting that. Uh, and you know, a lot of this ends up in just the overall density of the offsuit uh, hands, particularly like those offsuit broadways or offsuit ASX hands that might be in our range uh, when we open. Um, a large portion of the time, they're just going to completely miss. Um, and you know, if they do miss, uh, you know, when we have the offsuit combinations, we have 12 more combinations of that particular hand that's just whiffing the flop where our opponent is is going to be much more you know condensed to hands like pocket pairs uh suited connectors so they're not going to you know have large chunks of hands that uh miss the flop i mean they're going to have hands that miss the flop obviously but it's not going to be as uh big of a of a chunk of hands that we might have that that misses the flop so there's going to be a lot of those spots that you know where because they're a little bit more narrow um and you know, we have so much more air in our hands that kind of offsets the uh, disadvantage that they're going to be at for not having hands like aces, kings, ace, king, and a lot of those top ends hands in their in their range. Um, the LP range late position is pretty vague. Um, which position is this supposed to be? And it looks quite wide, almost um, not a button range, but like a cutoff range. What is it? So the range that I have in this, um, I actually just blended my button and cutoff ranges. So I, I took, uh, so if you're okay. looking at the image in there, it's um, anything that's uh, at full frequency is my cutoff range. And then um, the anything that's at the 50% frequency is my button range. And I just kind of uh, blended those two together. Gotta. Well, that would certainly seem to advantage the small blind in a lot of ways. Pretty sneaky and a nice insight you provided uh, for the reader. But, you know, we've, we've made people wait because what they really want to hear these days from you is about your experience and maybe how you use some of this stuff on uh, Poker Out Loud. You were one of the guys everybody was watching. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been fun to watch myself uh, somewhat, somewhat cringeworthy at times, uh, you know, looking back in retrospect. But it's been it's been really, really fun to uh, just re rewatch the experience. You know, I forget a lot about it because we filmed in October. So uh, it's uh, it seems like forever ago. <laughs> Be truthful. How many times have you watched yourself? <laughs> um, well, I uh, I definitely have watched a, a few of the uh, clips of uh, a few times. I, I mean, I guess the the interesting part and the you know you can kind of uh, you know have disguise the uh, you know the the vanity portion of it as I'm just studying, right? So I'm I'm I, I'm looking at the way I'm explaining a situation and, and picking that apart. Um, but no, it's I. It, it's it's been fun to really watch and and you know not just myself but even just other situations that I you know had forgotten about that uh, you know are popping up and I you know I'm kind of remembering this after the fact. Now somewhere on here I'm not sure where maybe it's under media is a review of you playing. Yep, it's in the media hands. section and I have each if... episode. All right, and I think one of them I think I found it. You discuss an interesting uh, strategy point that isn't always it's not always kosher. In fact, I was on a podcast recently, and I could hear one of the co-hosts sort of snickering at me when I brought it up. So you flatted early position against under-the-gun Fausto. Can you talk about this hand a little bit? I think you provided a short video where you ended up back-raising ace-king. Oh, so that that was in the uh, Elite Academy. And I actually wanted to put that in there as context. Sure. In Poker Out Loud, sure. yeah. In po so... Um, no, I, and that was actually, uh, it's funny, I so the, the ace-king hand, I like to do that, in, it, but it's a specific situation, I think, that um, 
requires doing that. And actually, I I went into that academy game, knowing that I had Fausto, uh, you know, very close to me on my on my right. And you know, Fausto is a really tough and um, you know really aggressive player. And um, I, I also know that playing at the, I mean, you went to uh, you know had experience working um, with uh, some of the guys at Software Wise, so you know that you know a lot of those stream games, uh, people get fairly aggressive and you know three bet happy. So I went in with a strategy against uh, when Fausto was kind of under the gun. Um, and when I was kind of playing against early position was uh, I actually in that case there was literally not going to have a three bet range and flat everything against Fausto's open so that I could have some of those back four bet opportunities uh, just because I knew that it would get three bet fairly frequently. And that's that's I, I like to kind of throw some of those stronger hands in there. Uh, just so that I can arm myself against those potential three bets. And it does allow me to open up my range a little bit and play more hands as a result of that. Right. So in this scenario that you use as a comparison from the academy, there's an open from Fausto, you flat ace king in the next position, and then there's a very light three bet against the under the gun uh, player. He makes it very large and polarizing. I believe Fausto then uh, calls, and then with, you know... You know, with plenty to play for, you jam. And the guys liked it. And that's the only thing I wanted to question. So far, I've loved most of your commentary and decisions. I didn't personally find that to be as compelling as uh, Berkey and Chin did. Could you explain the decision to jam there rather than make uh, a back raise that allows for fold equity to your opponents? Well, I didn't know if I really had much fold equity. So I, I think uh, effective stacks were at that point like 2,400. And uh, I believe the three bet was in the range of, of 200-ish. Um, if Fausto didn't call, I think I would have uh, um, put in a raise more like to, you know, in that seven to 800 range of, you know, playing that around third sta third stacks uh sizing um but when fausto then calls as well uh you know it, it kind of puts me at that cusp where uh, you know I, I get to the point of if i try to raise my sizing a little bit more i'm going to end up with a you know poor spr situation on the flop or i guess you know just my it, it's going to be i'm not going to really have much fold equity on the flop and then um you know at the same time if i keep the raise size a little bit smaller it's a decent chance that i end up with you know one or even two callers uh behind me here so uh to me in that spot there i i thought that my best option there was to actually just jam it and you know if i'm called at, at least i i'm most likely flipping oh fair enough i mean you have to make these decisions in game these chip stack counts aren't always right i think there was room to create an spr one pot where you definitely had fold equity against at least one of the players um but the other thing is that you know ace jack just snap folds and if you're getting in a range that ace jack snap folds well is ace queen tank folding what are you really getting action from when you risk that much to win, you know? That's fair. Five, when you're risking 2,400 to win 500. Um, anyway, I love this stuff, and it's very interesting, and you get to read on Lukic's site all sorts of stuff about actual poker out loud play. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, I love reading the YouTube chatters, commentaries <laughs> on it. What is it actually like doing it? Well, I mean, is it as, you know, is it as slow as you hear? Is it actually fun? Is it boring? What's going on? It's 
incredibly boring <laughs> to be fair um it's like playing <laughs> it's like playing online poker in your basement if you only had if you only got one hand every 15 minutes so you know it's funny I, I spent so much time preparing for that game and you know when i was there i was really ready to implement a strategy and you know the first hour you know you're sharp uh it's just like you're at a normal table and it's flowing and you know hell i i, I mean I'm sitting at a table, you know, in front of like, you know, Berkey and Chin and, you know, these really good pros. And, you know, so I'm excited and I'm, you know, really eager to play, but we're playing like six hands an hour. So you have a lot of downtime between hands and it's really hard to stay focused. And, you know, when you get a cold stretch of cards, which I actually did for the first like four hours of play, that boredom compounds significantly. So um, you find yourself pressing a little bit and you find yourself trying to look for ways to insert yourself or find ways to deviate outside of range construction, which, you know, is going to get you into some tricky spots, especially against players that can identify that and, and capitalize against mistakes. So it's, it's, it's tough. It was a really challenging experience, but it, it was, it was fun. I mean, I, I learned a ton. I, I learned that, uh, you know, one, I, I learned that I could play against those guys, which is which was uh, really important to me going in there. Um, you know, they've all been playing for uh, uh, a long time. They're professionals. Uh, I'm a part time player. I've been playing for a number of years. And up until a couple of years ago, I was mostly playing one three. So, you know, I've been working so hard. Well, wait a minute. Everyone on YouTube says they can play with these guys. Are they really tough or not? I mean, they where the difference lies is like well one i mean yes yes they are obviously they're they're much 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 more precise uh than um you know all of these uh the youtube commenters uh, <laughs> uh give them credit for and, and they really they really are um and then two just their pulse uh having their finger on the pulse of you know game flow and how to profile and deviate and exploit people is just really 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 challenging like you know a lot of times you can go sit down at a, at a one three or two five game at a casino and just implement the most basic strategy not change it for anything and you'd be fine right because none of the other players at the table are really doing much to you know try to exploit people individually you know when i'm playing against like berkey and chin and you know they're developing individual strategies or counters against things that I'm specifically doing at the table and, and they're really good at it. And it's just, it's, it's tough to play against. And are you playing for money or not? Answer the question for one time for the, the people who doubt, they always say, Oh, they're playing for play chips. Are you playing no, for play chips? We play for real money. Yeah. So it's uh it, it's, we play for real money. And, uh, um, I think Berkey and Chin played for more money. They, they did a little cross book, uh, action on, uh, some of the different, uh, they, they teamed up with, uh, you know, two of us on Berkey's team and two of us on, on Chin's team. But, um, yeah, we play for real money. Beautiful. Actually, you know, and that whole cross booking thing, poker is never quite quite what it seems. You know, you never know what people are doing behind the scenes with 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 betting and whatnot. I remember not to get too derailed, but Patrick Antonius's explanation of a very big hand versus Phil Ivey. And it had nothing to do with what people thought, because he had this massive prop bet going on at the same time. (laughs) So it's really hard to judge. It is. And that's kind of a good point that I want to bring up. I want to talk a little about uh, poker and language. You're a very articulate person. Uh, Berkey is a very articulate person, maybe maybe overly so in some cases. But the co- poker community as a whole doesn't like it. And there's a whole thread on 2 plus 2 right now where they're sort of mocking um, a rather simple concept 
Um, what do you think of the way po- poker is, how poker is described by Matt Berkey? And, and do you use it? Do you relate to it? What's your comment here? So, you know, I, I definitely uh, use most of the same language uh, that Berkey and, and, and Chin uh, do. Um, I'm a big believer of you sometimes you need the, the complex language to be able to understand concepts, or at least I need complex language sometimes to be able to understand nuance and understand concepts. And some people may not necessarily need to, you know, understand the difference between like, you know, what capitalization is and realization and, uh, you know, polarized ranges versus linear ranges. And and that's fine if people don't necessarily need the language themselves. Uh, But I think it all boils down to just actually being able to articulate why you are doing the things that you are doing and you know whether that's from the incentives of your hand your range uh you know the uh, your opponent uh, how you're uh, you know how you might be deviating to play a particular opponent if you can't really explain as to why you're doing something uh then you're really for the most part somewhat random and you know i think that's so i think that's where the challenge lies is is and that's why I, I like to use a lot of the different terminologies is because it helps to very accurately describe why you might take a certain strategic option uh, with a certain situation that's presented in front of you. Sure. As advertised, the why is a little bit more important to these guys, and that seems to be the culture. Um, but what about explaining what you're doing to yourself in a real game or on poker out loud? There's a lot of flack that some people get when they're more novice and they're having trouble or when to go to the opposite extreme, when especially Christian explains what he's doing, uh, the criticism is that he's very ornate. How as a real player does it feel talking and what comes out of your mouth and what do you think of com- that? The, what do you think of what came out of your mouth while you're doing that? <laughs> um, you know, it's. I think it's like easy to look back on something after the fact and uh, say, you know, it's easy to go look back on the hand after it takes place and analyze something really, really well and articulately. Like I can go spend, I could spend a couple hours in my basement running hands through solvers, thinking through different, uh, you know, situations, uh, um, looking at how ranges are interplaying with one another and, and come up with a really eloquent way of, of explaining something. In, in game, it's difficult and it's it's really hard. Um, one of the things I did to prepare was, and I think this has helped me outside of Poker Out Loud, is I really just tried to put together like a th- structured thought process. So, um, you know, what am I going to uh, um, like uh, pre-flop? What are the, the, the three to five things that I actually want to think through uh, as to whether I should be playing a certain hand and how I should be playing it? On the flop, you know, uh, did I arrive at the flop in that offensive environment, defensive environment? Am I in position, out of position? Um, how does my range interact with the board, et cetera? So I have these like this structured way of of breaking down a problem. And what was that was helpful for me in game was because, you know, one of the things I, I learned through this is that we just internalize so much of what we do without even thinking. So when actually forced to explain it, it's really, really challenging to do so articulately. Um, so helping me to actually just build out a structured thought process was was really great for poker out loud but you know i i've still kind of taken that with me afterwards and it's helped me you know just at the table i i'm thinking through things uh more deliberately than i may have been doing so before just because you know i may have just internalized it but uh you know i may have internalized it wrongly before and just you know it's easy to miss things that way now i want to relate that to 
one of the few questions I have left for you. I closed the last podcast with asking you, well, what has all this work on the flop gotten you? You said you've had a great year. Things have come together. What really has changed in your game? Maybe you can just, maybe just a highlight, but what has changed given all the work and this experience uh, interacting with really solid players? Sure. Um, I think, uh, well, one, um, I think uh, precision. I, I feel like I'm, I'm much more precise uh, than I was previously. And that's just from, I think, running through um, lots and lots of data and just seeing, um, you know, not, not only at the macro level of just learning things like frequencies, but, you know, I try to once a week get down into the micro level and run through a specific situation, whether it's a, a flop analysis or a turn or river or whatever it is, um, and you know start understanding and from a construction standpoint, how am I going to actually play with my entire range? Uh, it's helped me be a lot more precise, and that's been you know really great from an execution standpoint. Um, confidence, uh, you know, once you start you know kind of winning a little bit more, and you know you start uh, being able to play in in bigger games, and you know. I, the first time I sat down at a 510 game, I was, you know, really shaking. And, you know, you could probably see that in my hands. And, you know, now I can sit down at a 510 game or, you know, sometimes that turns into a 1025 game and, and I'm fine. And I feel really comfortable playing against those uh, players uh, just from confidence. You know, I think so. I think that's been, you know, super helpful as, as well. You know, let's get a, get outside your website and solve for why and all that and you know what else in poker media do you enjoy are there any other training things or do you are you do you follow any vlogs are you a book fan tell us um, about your your uh, interaction with poker stuff yeah I, i'm not really a vlog uh um watcher um i i do read books uh still i i and i enjoy actually holding the book so i have paper books that i i still uh um, read and, and use my highlighter and use my pen um, as I'm as I'm going through those. Uh, so that's tends to be primarily most of the way in which I'm actually getting um, a lot of my outside poker info. Um, I, I still like I, I mean I work with most of the training content on the software Y site, but that's even that's like it's hard enough just keeping up with all of the content that they put on their site. Um, so it's hard for me to actually you know, start looking at other sites as well. Um, every now and then I'll, I'll take a look at a video from like run it once or, or something else. But uh, most of it is just either, you know, software Y videos, uh, books, or just my independent work that I'm doing, you know, within, uh, uh, you know, solvers and stuff like that. Cool. What's your biggest complaint about poker or the poker community? Um, it's a good question. I don't know if I have, I guess, a complaint. I mean, I think it's a, it, I, I love the community. I think it's like, it's, you know, especially as someone who is, you know, probably kind of uh, towing the line of being outside and, and inside the community. I, you know, I, it's not my full-time job, right? I, I have a day job that, uh, you know, supports me. So, you know, if I had to stop playing poker tomorrow, it's not going to affect me financially. Um, but I, so I think the community in general is, is, I, I like the way that the community, it, it's a small group of people. It's uh that is um, very opinionated about things, um, uh, that, to say the least. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I think it, the poker can be the poker Twitter can be fairly relentless, um, uh, especially if someone uh, wrongs the industry <laughs> or whatnot. But I, I think for the most part, it's I think it's a it's a good community that you know has the general. Uh, status of the industry at uh, at heart. So it, it wants the industry to improve. Uh, Berkey mentions this a lot. And I, I've heard other, um, uh, you know, 
high name guys mention this a lot is, you know, there definitely is an opportunity for, for better collaboration, uh, particularly at the top of the community. And, uh, you know, I think that would be definitely, that's definitely fair. If, if we, you know, if there was more collaboration at things like, you know, World Series of Poker and, uh, you know, WPT and, you know, having kind of more of a centralized, uh, you know, or larger coalition uh, uh, to be, a, you know, kind of a body of, uh, of poker, I think you might see things move more forward or more quickly in, in, in a certain direction. But, you know, overall, I, I think it's, I, I enjoy being a part of the poker community. Well, that was a very diplomatic answer. And you're a very <laughs> professional sounding guy. Did you, did you wear a tie to this interview? Uh, I'm sitting in my, uh, this is my coronavirus uh, outfit, which is uh, sweats in my basement right now. But uh, if it makes you feel better, you can think that I'm wearing a tie. <laughs> no, no, you carry it off well. Well, we're wrapping up. Did I did I miss anything? Is there anything that you wanted to share while I've got you? No, I mean, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've been really, uh, you know, I, when I first started, I, I'm going to be posting a lot of my stuff on my website and I'm going to continue with this. And, you know, I, I think now that I realized, uh, you know, kind of my overall project that I'm working towards, uh, my website, I, I plan on being a little bit more focused with that. So um, I, I'm going to, I'm working on a post right now, which um, kind of talks about how I'm going to be uh, shifting a little bit of the focus of the site to kind of meet those overall goals. Um, but I'm like really kind of overwhelmed and um, you know excited about some of the uh, uh, feedback that I've gotten on the site so far. I mean, for, when I first started it, like I, I I'm a really math heavy guy, and I'm trying to share this from the perspective of someone who thinks in in numbers and data all the time. So really, for all I knew, I I could have been just talking to five people, right? So and and I didn't really know what the size of the audience might be. Um, but the reception has been really, really great. And it's, uh, you know, it turns out there actually is an audience of people who are interested in, in math based stuff. Uh, so, you know, that's where I plan on really devoting a lot of my energies is to uh, continue to try to grow that site a little bit. And, you know, hopefully uh, that continues to um, kind of evolve in the future. Well, that's a great place to close on. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on, Michael. Just a few notes for listeners. Be sure to check out Greg Porter's webinar podcast and explanation that's coming up on March 21st. For those of you who are struggling with the solver, this is a very thorough answer. And with that, uh, wash your hands. All right. Thanks for listening. Take it away, Dean. Indeed. Wash your hands. Practice social distancing. But uh, I think most importantly, make sure to be taking care of the elderly friends and family in your life that you care about. Uh, they are the ones who will be most susceptible to the virus. As uh, Chris mentioned, make sure to check out uh, Porter's webinar coming up. Uh, there's contact form there under his podcast episode. You can ask him questions about it, the costs involved. I know there's a lot of solver, how to use the solver information out there, but what is valuable about this webinar is talking about some of the reasons that people uh, use the solver incorrectly, some incorrect conclusions that you can easily come out with. Uh, and so uh, really, uh, some, he's going to share some good ways to actually get better information from, uh, from your solver use. And as I mentioned, the uh, little community tab there at thepokerzoo.com. If you care to uh, chat with other poker players about the current state of live games when casinos coming back online, uh, 
how you are coping with the coronavirus and the changes in your lifestyle, where you're making up the <laughs> the uh, lost income, etc. Uh, you can use it. If not, I will take it back offline. Uh, stay safe, and we will see you next time. Here's the